Hello and welcome to episode eight of Cypher Vision, an era of IP transparency. I'm joined by my co-host Francesca Lavoie. Hi Frankie. How are you Nigel? I'm good. I'm even better because today's guest is Dave Capos, partner at Cravat, former director of the USPTO. Hi Dave, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, great to see you, uh, Nigel, and nice to join you, Frankie. It's great to have you with us, Dave, especially I was thinking it's kind of getting autumn in the Northern Hemisphere here. The days are drawing in, but I'm hoping that the conversation we can have today will shine a bit of a light on IP transparency, which I think is not a new topic, but I think definitely something our listeners would love to hear about. So I was wondering, Dave, if you could tell us a little bit about your career and how IP transparency has played a role in the organizations that you've worked in. I joined IBM as an engineer and then had quite a number of jobs, including then becoming a lawyer and working in San Jose, California in litigation, then as a chief IP lawyer, and then moving into the government from 2009 to 2013, and, and now in the private sector. And then coming to your question, Frankie, you know, relative to transparency, it's been a theme for my entire career as information has become such a dominant force and as the IP system in general, the patent system particularly has become more important in the subject of concern, criticism at time, but also extreme economic and strategic value and other forms of IP, trademarks, trade secrets, designs, copyrights have all escalated in importance When something's important, people want to know more about it and they want to shed more light on it. And so that's just a nutshell on how transparency has been a feature and I think will continue to be a feature going forward for IP. We're lucky to get you so quickly off the back of your testimony before the US Senate Subcommittee on Intellectual Property. And that was in the context of the new proposed Pride in Patent Ownership Act. Could you just briefly explain what the thinking is behind that and possibly how that links to some of the other things you were just mentioning around transparency? I testified in front of the subcommittee just yesterday. It goes back nearly 20 years when I was in private practice and we used to run into situations, not infrequently, where a patent would come up, we'd find it somehow, we'd be concerned that we might need a license. Of course, I was at IBM, a company that had thousands of cross licenses in place. And so one of the first things you think is we might already be licensed to this patent. But frequently, we couldn't tell who owned it because the party who owned it had either not recorded their ownership in the USPTO's registry or a record had been made in the name of a fictitious company or an LLC, a limited liability company. And so we couldn't gain transparency. So I became interested in the issue and started advocating back then in the early 2000s that something needed to be done about that. And then when I went into the government, we worked on it some more. We actually uh, held roundtables and sought public input at the USPTO in view of the discourse that happened during the Obama administration not being forgotten and frankly having been raised again in the campaign for the last presidential election here where a number of projects, including one that I participated in called the Day One Initiative, which proposes new things, if you will, for the new administration to do, another agenda from some of the campaign work that I participated in. And it then got to the attention of the U.S. Senate, which decided to get into this issue again, and voila, you've got legislation. 
but transparency is now very much center stage with a legislation being dropped. It's viewed as bipartisan. I had sidebar conversations with a lot of staff and senators yesterday. Frankly, it's hard to argue against transparency, and you didn't hear anybody do that yesterday. So I feel like our time has come with regard to having a really robust register for ownership of patent assets. And for all the complexity, Dave, can I make an attempt to summarize what the new legislation is trying to do, which is to let the world know who owns a patent by making a patent owner record their ownership? Is it more complicated than that? And isn't it obvious? On the margins, it's not more complicated than that. And I felt like it really got uh, resonance with the senators at the hearing. The initiative that you champion for years now, Nigel, called Oropo, which a number of us are involved in, a number of great companies from the UK as well as the US voluntarily record their interests in patents. They may or may not actually own it. It starts getting more complicated. Even more complicated is internal corporate structures, affiliate structures. Many companies now, as you know, will put their entire patent portfolio in a subsidiary, like a licensing company that's a separate subsidiary under the umbrella of the parent company. And how do you deal with that? So that's what I tried to bring out yesterday to the senators. It's easy on the center line. The PTO to implement this is going to have to make a lot of hard decisions about what's in, what's out, how to keep this from becoming a monster, how to get good information, et cetera. We do spend on-site vision a lot of time suggesting that IP lawyers sometimes make things more complicated than they need to be and think of IP as super special and different to all other asset classes on planet Earth. I mean, I'm thinking about land and I'm thinking about stocks and shares where there have been mandatory ownership requirements around for somewhere between 100 and 150 years. And sure, there have been some kinks on the road, but there must be some easy place to start without getting caught up in all the exceptions. Yeah, agreed, Nigel. That's where I'm coming from too. And I was trying to encourage yesterday and will continue to encourage here in the US this legislation to proceed. And then the USPTO to find sensible, I'll call it mid-lane approaches to implementing. And then hopefully we can take this global because it's even harder if it's hard to figure out who owns U.S. patents. When I'm trying to figure out on an international deal who owns a patent in Eastern Europe, the Mideast, Sub-Saharan Africa, right? It's really difficult to figure out who's got what interests in these things. And so seeing this legislation and Europa on a global level become a catalyst could be really powerful and really positive. And probably worthwhile to give a very formal shout out to IBM, Microsoft, British Aerospace Systems and Arm, who were the founding corporates back in 2015. As you said, major US corporations, major European corporations who across those two continents could see no problem with transparency. And I'd encourage all our listeners to take a look at that. There's a very easy way, short of legislation, voluntary way of making transparency better. Frankie, what do you make of all of that? Well, I was just thinking, Dave, you were mentioning global trade and the challenges that you have to face when you're trying to understand things across different continents. 
What do you see has changed, though? Has there been positive change globally in the last 20 years? There's obviously more to do, but have you seen an improvement in transparency? 20 years ago, we probably wouldn't have even tried to figure out a set of global assets. So things have improved. Putting more records online has certainly been a market improvement. Accessibility of data sources from anywhere in the world has been improving. Governments in many countries have taken more of an interest. But I think now we're at a kind of a turning point. And with this legislation, and then with work that would really be rightly done next in Europe, starting right there in in the UK, I think, we could make this into a kind of a global wave in a positive way. Imagine, right, maybe as soon as five years from now, a single global database that you can go to and find out for a particular patent all its family members and who owns every one of them. That would be so cool. And it seems pretty simple, actually. You don't need any inventions to make that. We just need to keep driving forward. Nigel, before you go on, I just wonder, this is now becoming a thing, obviously, in the US because of the legislation. Do people care about this issue in Europe beyond the few big companies we've talked about? Are you people talking about like transparency and patent ownership there? Transparency, yes. I mean, the move is towards data and using data to go and make evidence-based decision. That is the whole rationale behind Cypher. And what concerns me most is effectively the work of people like Cypher and everyone else, where they become the haves and the have-nots. Organizations like Cravath, who use Cypher, have all the information at their fingertips. And then there's the smaller companies, the SMEs, can't afford it. So you just make the competitive disadvantage worse, the information arbitrage worse. So credit to all the references you gave to the global initiatives, both within the IP5 and within the major patent offices to go and push towards transparency. But it's not just transparency of ownership, which keeps the people I talk to up at night. It's risk and value. So on the value side, patents are licensed. And if you think patent ownership is bad, The information around patent licensing is appalling. You get some in the SEC filings, but generally not disclosed until the most aggressive litigation and very late in the day at that. And in relation to risk, litigation databases, again, credit to the United States for PACER, the public database of litigation, which is exceptionally high quality data. But in Germany, There are laws which said the names of the parties for privacy reasons can't always be disclosed. So we're at the other end of the spectrum. So how crazy is it that you could have litigation between two parties which could define an exclusivity in a whole sector, in a whole geography, and yet it's virtually impossible to find out about it? Yeah, yeah. The litigation or the licensing transparency issue is a really tricky one. We should talk about that and data ownership or data control transparency. We had a while ago a Nobel Prize winning speaker, Paul Romer, from right down the street at NYU came and spoke, and he spoke about how to create an appropriate rights regime for data. And his view was that data is so non-rivalrous, I think licensing information is in the same category, that you really want the government to step in and create registries and incentives for people to make their information adequately public. And the government then, it's an appropriate role the government can play as a kind of a neutral, honest broker to curate, 
clean, anonymized data as appropriate so that you can foster marketplace developments, both in licensing information, which, as you say, Nigel, is woefully opaque, and in data location or data ownership or data control so that it can become more evident to parties that there's someone's got a huge amount of data somewhere and if I negotiate with them, I might actually be able to get access to it as opposed to I need access to data, but I'm looking out over this broad world here visible from New York City and you'd go, well, I have no idea. Someone out there might have it, but I have no idea how to reach them because there's no way to reach them. I don't know whether the analogy is the prisoner's dilemma, but in most of the conversations with IP owners, they all complain about not having the information they need to make decisions to communicate to the board. And at the other hand, when you ask them to disclose the information to make it better, they say, why should I go first? And I think that does create a slightly sort of a logjam. Right. That's where you can see a government role as a collecting point. And as you mentioned, you know, the SEC here in the U.S., does a fair amount of that. You could get an enormous amount of information by going on EDGAR, the SEC's database, and there's thousands of license agreements there that have to get disclosed, mostly redacted, but you can learn a lot of information. The idea is to take that further. It really does need the government to be involved because the government, of course, has got like subpoena power and compulsion power, but it also is relatively well-trusted to anonymize and aggregate things so that no one's identity or sensitive information gets disclosed. I feel like there's an important role there in licensing information. We're going to suffer from the kinds of allegations that we've always had about from licensees saying licensors are charging too much and they can't tell what the market is because they can't see the license agreements. And we're going to keep suffering from that until we get better transparency. It's interesting. We've talked a lot about governments and obviously what they can do to help this transparency improve. Just thinking back to corporates and back to the boardroom, have you seen a change in the understanding and therefore the questions being asked around IP in the boardroom? Because it feels that should be another force that should also be more educated and be able to ask more questions if there's more transparency there. I think boards have gotten a lot more sophisticated. I experienced that myself claim scope analysis. They're interested in these things as business control assets and assets that enable them to have good profit margins, basically, and to counter the moves of their competitors. The boards have become much more sophisticated, and I see much more time at board meetings devoted to intellectual asset-based discussions. In our recent patent risk survey, over 50% of respondents suggested that one of the communication challenges that boards don't understand intellectual property. To what extent do you feel that's an impediment? And bearing in mind, you seem to have quite open access to many boards. How have you solved that communication challenge? Well, for me, it's all about preparation. Number one, it's about understanding from, usually it'll be the CEO or maybe the GC that'll want me in a board meeting. It's investors in this case, senior investors who call and say, will you join this board meeting and then find out what my mission is? What do you want me to convey to the board? And in this case, it's a kind of a business level thumbnail of the quality of the IP portfolio of the company. 
But more importantly, the next level of breakthroughs about how to actually get the science and the materials to work. And they got patents on that stuff. To me, it's all about preparation so that you can be crisp in the meeting, convey what you need to convey and not um, go into so much minutia that the board quickly says, oh God, another specialist, send them away. I think it's interesting that you mentioned investors, which I guess is you know almost like the third prong of the triangle. Their understanding of IP and having transparency around the value that IP can bring to an organization. How do you feel the interaction is between investors and board members? I mean, you seem to have an example there, but generally, what's your feel? Sort of who's getting who to get educated on IP? Depends on the company size, of course. If you're dealing with a large public company, you're almost always dealing with the board and not individual investors. Smaller companies and private ones, you're dealing with the investors. And I would tell you, it's a bit of a mix, right? In many cases, the investors are also on the board. So you're talking with alter egos of everybody. But thinking of some other private boards that I advise, I would say it's usually the board that's more proactive about getting me involved because they want the investors. Again, there's some overlap, but there might be some investors that aren't on the board. They want the investors to have confidence that the company's got its act together. They're doing their job as interested board members because they're also invested in the company. And they're always thinking about the next round, right? Say general, it's the board, but it can vary. And to bring us back to that transparency conversation, you know it's one of my bugbears, Dave, that reporting accounts are completely silent in the common case as to intangible assets. But yet we have a situation where enterprise value is very significantly dependent on intangible assets. What's your views on whether companies should do more to communicate somehow? It doesn't have to be in accounting standards. What's your views about breaking down that wall of lack of transparency? Yeah, that's a great question. And maybe that's our next project, Nigel, after we get the ownership transparency done. It's weird. The last survey I saw, it was at least, at least in the US, it's at least 85% of corporate value is in intangibles now. And in many cases, that 85% of the value of the company rides on the balance sheet on a single line, goodwill. And it's like, you know, what's behind that? Nobody has any idea. So something's going to cause an awakening there and needs to. What I see is smart companies, they don't take it up necessarily as an accounting issue, but they definitely take it up as a value driver issue. And they have a very good understanding, appropriately tasking, I think, the IP lawyers in concert with senior business people, and that's usually the finance wing of the company, to understand the value of the IP. And again, it's not a matter of putting it on the balance sheet, but it's a matter of, of understanding the value and the risks associated with potentially needing to go and get third-party IP. That's the most mature approach I've seen. Not enough companies use it. Small companies almost never get into that level of detail. There's a start, but it definitely needs to grow. Great. And I think we've got one final question for you, if that's okay, Dave. We've talked a little bit about the past and where we are today, and great to see some of this legislation coming through from the US government, and let's hope we can see that more globally. What do you think will change in the next five years, though, within the US and globally? Well, (laughs) what do I think or what do I hope? With the pandemic that we're still dealing with, I fear that we'll continue to have 
a lot of pressure brought to bear on intellectual property in general and accusations of it impeding or thwarting innovation. You heard some of that at the hearing in front of the Senate IP subcommittee just yesterday on a topic that doesn't necessarily need to focus on allegations that intellectual property actually hinders innovation. But anyway, that theme is out there. We're going to continue dealing with it. I fear it's not going to get better in the U.S. right now. It's getting worse, actually. And I hope others are to take the IP discussion to a different level, to a much more understandable consumer on the street kind of level to get people, including young people, consumers in general, scholars and policymakers to have a much more natural understanding, almost a reflexive understanding of the importance of assets that protect innovation, trademarks, copyrights, trade secrets, patents, as the incentive engines that cause people to invest their time and effort in innovation. And just once you develop, or if you could get people to develop that reflex, then when someone comes out and says some crazy thing about, oh, well, we should just get rid of intellectual property because it hinders innovation, people will, will arch their eyebrows and say, what are you, crazy? Of course we don't want to. We want to do the opposite thing, right? And you, we need to develop that kind of um, uh, reflexivity, that spiritual almost knowledge about innovation. That's what I see coming as the challenge of the next five years, and it's something that I'm putting significant effort into. So now the really difficult question. Our listeners always look for a cipher vision, a key takeaway. Hey, what would that be from this discussion? Well, I think, Nigel, it's got to be uh, transparency and the role of tools like Cypher and the gigantic amount of data that it has access to in enabling curious, inquisitive individuals and companies to learn an awful lot about the world of intellectual property that's out there and make much better business decisions uh, than they ever could in the past. Intellectual property reflects and protects trillions of dollars of investments. IP sits at the heart of the global superstructure that's driving the innovation and digital economy. Yet its development into a functional asset class is hampered by the basics, lack of transparency. This exists at a micro and macro scale Transparency of ownership at one end and transparency of value at the other. Both work together to hold back the evolution of intangible assets. Dave Kapos is one of the great IP polymaths whose journey includes all the significant axes of influence. Owner, regulator, lawyer. From a personal, cipher and industry perspective, thank you, Dave. Thank you, Nigel and Frankie. Great to participate. Thank you for tuning into the CypherVision podcast series. Please continue the conversation on social using hashtag CypherVision and share your thoughts about today's episodes on an era of IP transparency.